This episode of Seize the A is brought to you by Zero, online accounting software that helps you do business but better. You don't always have those moments where doing what we're passionate about is economically, practically, emotionally feasible. But finding the way to, to weave in my passions and what interests me, even in the smallest ways, has been the way that doors have opened and the ways that opportunities have come up. Welcome to the Seize the Yay podcast. Busy and happy are not the same thing. We too rarely question what makes the heart sing. We work, then we rest, but rarely we play and often don't realise there's more than one way. So this is a platform to hear and explore the stories of those who found lives they adore. The good, bad and ugly, the best and worst day will bear all the facets of seizing your yay. I'm Sarah Davidson, or Spoonful of Sarah, a lawyer turned fun entrepreneur who swapped the suits and heels to co-found Matcha Maiden and Matcha Milk Bar. Seize the Yay is a series of conversations on finding a life you love and exploring the self-doubt, challenge, joy and fulfillment along the way. Hello, beautiful people. I am so excited to share one of the women whose praises I could sing over and over, who was originally lined up for International Women's Day, for the incredible impact she has had on my journey through many different chapters. Dr. Alexandra Phelan was a few years ahead of me at Monash University, and you'll hear has a very similar personality combination of Nerdburger and Artie Fadi with a splash of languages, and also started her career at the same law firm as I did, now known as King Edward Mellon which was one of the reasons I originally wanted to work there. While we both ultimately left corporate law, Alex is a glowing example of how you can stay within the law and still find a niche that suits your strengths and interests. And she has gone on to become a seriously impressive member of the Center for Global Health Science and Security at Georgetown University School of Medicine, an assistant professor in the Department of Microbiology and Immunology, and an adjunct professor of law at Georgetown University Law Center. That is three different departments. Her honours thesis in her undergrad of biomed science and law and her doctoral thesis both focus on international law and the prevention of infectious diseases, including the challenges and risks we face in managing those diseases with things like quarantine, wearing masks, anything ring a bell here, (laughs) which has made her a leading global authority on health security and incredibly relevant to the world's response to COVID-19. She is infinitely impressive, painfully humble, and continues to inspire me every day. And I'm so honored that she made time to join the show from Washington, D.C. Alex shares some fascinating insights on the more technical side to the challenge of a global pandemic like COVID, and particularly on the challenges over the last 15 months that have been faced around the world with her intellect and empathy shining through. I hope you learn as much as I did. Lovely, Alex. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Sarah. It is, it's just so lovely to chat with you and connect with you from afar. It's just so nice to see your face. It's been such a long time. <laughs> I feel the same way, you know, because it's, it's not just you know, seeing you, but also it brings back a uh, real grounding for me, I think, you know, being over in the US and obviously over the year that this has been to sort of connect back in the home, hear a familiar accent is just, yeah particularly special. Oh, I can imagine just that little slice of home Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. a little bit of a bogan accent. Yeah. (laughs) 
Well, guys, Alex is one of those people who has truly been a huge influence on my life through so many different parts of it. You know, I always talk about chapters and how you don't need to see the whole staircase to take the first step and building the right neighborhood. And Alex is relevant to all of those for me. You know, at university, we were at the same uni. Alex was a few years ahead of me and we both loved law and languages and travel. And then we worked at the same law firm. And part of the reason I wanted to go there was because Alex had started at Mellison's before me through so many different chapters of my life. You have just been such a huge inspiration and role model and I'm, I'm so honoured to have you on the show. Thanks, Sarah. That's that's just really touching and lovely to hear. It's been a, a, a lovely journey together in different ways as well as we've both sort of gone off in different paths from those common uh, common steps. And that's what I love, that none of us ever knew where we'd end up from those common foundations. And you're such a wonderful example of someone who also left corporate law, but stayed within the law to find a niche that fits you so well and that all the pieces really make sense now. But before we jump into that, I always kick off with a little icebreaker to break down the glossy surface or fancy titles that we're often introduced to people with. And, you know, as my intellectual hero and now an assistant professor and a junk professor doing seriously impressive things at a global level, make us feel a bit better and share something really down to earth about you. Well, I, I don't know how, how relatable it is, but I, my downtime, um, my switch off time has always been since I was a little kid playing video games. No. I, yeah. So like because of the pandemic, I still don't have a PS5, but you know, I've got my PC, I've got my PlayStation, I've got my Switch, I've got, yeah, I, I love gaming and some of it is to, to connect back with people back home and, uh, but a lot of it is just to really switch off and I've managed to, to get in some good gaming sessions over this last year working from home which has been a huge relief Alex no face. <laughs> <laughs> but this is why this is my favorite question because it always unearths things that are so quirky but so normal and you know I think when people do get introduced to sort of the surface level of someone's career rather than who they are like what they do rather than who they are mm. it's really hard to imagine like what does an adjunct professor of law working on global international health policy do when they get home at night? You know, it's sort of hard to understand who you are, but that is amazing. (laughs) Essentially what I do when I get home is build really uninhabitable houses in The Sims or kill monsters in in Witcher or or play with friends in Destiny. Yeah, it's actually been a really, really a bit of a lifesaver, but always been part of Kind of me, so yeah. Wow, and I love that too. That like, you know, that one of the things I talk about the most, and we will of course get to that, is play TA and the idea that everyone, even if you're passionate about your job, needs something that is so unrelated to it and so unproductive in relation to your job and your vocation, yeah. just to get your brain pulled away from it. Oh, that's so right. You know, I cannot play video games about infectious disease. Like anything that's about like a zombie game, I cannot play it. Like that is just, it's just too close to work. So, What was your major barrier during COVID? Um, I couldn't source my gaming machine that yeah. I needed. Yeah, on the level of, you know, on, on 
Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You know, PS5 really isn't up there, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> or is it, though? I feel well, like it probably well, is. Yeah, I mean, good point. I think it's so easy in, whether it be sort of crisis response mode or uh, during, you know, pretty big international events like what we're all going through. And when you're doing serious work during the day, when you're dealing with, like, human rights issues and to, to as you said, not have that play and have that... Um, that sort of gentleness with yourself to actually go, it's okay to not be serious. It's okay to Mm. just switch off and, you know, every second of the day doesn't have to necessarily be about trying to get something out or make make an impact and how that's actually just really, really important. Totally. And I think especially over the past sort of 15 to 18 months for anyone whose job is actually important for the global direction of how we come through this pandemic you know I always say I've really had to reevaluate my idea of urgency and like if people don't get their magic green tea or podcast like nothing's going to happen unfortunately for certain people in the world like you know frontline workers and people like yourself researching and working on policy it actually matters whether when you take a break so it would be even harder to sort of carve out that time for you again which we will get to but I would love to start with the first section which is your way TA and I think one of the things that again gets skated over a lot in other conversations is we do get to see people like yourself on the news making big statements about you know, prevention of infectious diseases and you've been doing some incredible research all the way back to, you know, your doctoral work to now what you're doing over at Georgetown before COVID was even a thing and through the Ebola virus. But looking back at us at uni, it sort of fascinates me how someone could ever conceive of making their way to a position like yours. And you sort of, you know, you hear all these people but it's like, how did you get there? How did you even know that that was a pathway? When did you decide that that was a thing? You know, it's quite a specialist way to apply your skills. But yeah, I think the whole journey of figuring out what we like, what we don't like and starting in corporate and all those kinds of things is important to trace back to, to show everyone that it's not linear ever, that there's lots of twists and turns, some that you don't really love, some that you do really love. So take us all the way back to young Alex. As a kid, what were you like? What was your first job? What were you like? Eltham <laughs> College, leafy green, Melbourneian <laughs> suburb. Like who were you back then? And then take us through each chapter to now. So I, I think, you know, if I go all the way back to, you know, growing up in, you know, Eltham and Warren died is I think I've always had an eclectic range of interests. And that is, you know, I've always done like basketball, whilst we're really into music and then choirs and singing and then languages and and so and history. So I just I've always had this range of eclectic interests, which that's a nice way of putting I have a really short attention span and I need to be constantly <laughs> overstimulated <laughs> to, 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 to focus. And so, you know, through primary school and even then through high school, like, you know, I'd be, you know, playing basketball, but also in the choirs. But then from the age of sort of 15, I've spent a huge amount of time um, living and studying and working in, in China. You know, that was where my passions were. You know, I needed to be doing music to get that outlet. I needed to be doing um, sport to get that, that movement. And, you know, my interests were in, you know, the sciences and and literature. And I kind of just never felt how I could actually put it all together. And I started to realize that what I had been sort of creating by accident with this, you know, these many short attention spans was in my mind, the idea of a little bit like a tapestry, like lots of different colored threads that just don't look, you know, sitting on a table next to each other, they're completely contrasting and there's no sort of cohesion. But when you start to weave them together in the story, you start to see this image appear. 
And for me, that sort of after, you know, doing what I was very interested in in high school, which made no sense to anyone from the outside, you know, I was doing theatre and chemistry and biology and Chinese and literature and maths. <laughs> you know, when I went to university, I started with a, you know, a biomedical science degree because I had just a love of, of sciences. And I'd originally thought, do I want to go into medicine? And then realised that, no, I wanted to know, you know, I was fascinated by viruses, you know, these tiny little pathogens that can do so much uh, and so incredibly adept at changing the circumstances. That was, you know, an interest, but I was also lucky enough at Monash having the ability to do double degrees. And so Monash allowed me to do biomedical science and um, a diploma of languages in Mandarin, Chinese, so I could keep my Chinese going. But it also allowed me to do a law degree at the same time. So I was able to do all three, <laughs> all three at the same time. That was just to have that sort of diversity, to be able to be doing, you know, torts and reading these case studies and then going into a microbiology lab. And so Monash was the one place in, you know, Victoria that, that let me do all of that. And it just really worked for me. Um, it fitted with how I think and approach things and that tapestry was able to keep building and my final year of my law degree I was like I need to I had an offer to go start at this law firm um, at, at Malsons and I had 12 subjects to go all law subjects and so I was like right that's it I'm doing 12 subjects in a year to finish my law degree and oh my gosh that is literally 150% loading of what you're you know most of us do eight subjects and in fact some of us do six so that we can cope with the workload oh my gosh <laughs> It was intense, but it gave me an opportunity to do research. And I did an honours thesis looking at a piece of international law called the International Health Regulations that tries to prevent international spread of disease and how Australia had implemented it and whether that impacted human rights, whether Australia had appropriately considered what if we were to quarantine people? What if we were to close the borders? What if we were to compulsory require vaccination? And my, my contention was as we had failed to update our legislation appropriately. And I went on off to Malsons. So I'd sort of managed to bring some of the threads together, a little bit of the, of the biomed, a bit of the law, a little bit of China, because these laws were adopted after the first SARS outbreak. Mm. So I went to Malsons and I was really loving the practical skills. I really loved working in the law firm. And I started to work more on sort of the, the China and law. So I was starting to, I was always trying to find a way to balance at least two interests. You know, there was always some sort of connection. And working in sort of the climate change and, and clean tech sides of law. But because I can't focus on one thing at once, I, um, <laughs> I started to do a master's up at ANU in Canberra. So I'd go up there on weekends because it was how I was able to sort of do it intensively. And I got an opportunity to go to Geneva as part of that for a subject. And when I went to Geneva, I um, presented that thesis for my law degree to a couple of folks and I was offered some internships, uh, one at the WH, at the World Health Organization and one at, as legal counsel at, at Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance. And I had a big question, is, well, which one do I pick? And I thought, well, what if I don't pick? And Oh, of course. <laughs> I'm pretty sure you microbiologized a way to be superhuman or to be in more than one place <laughs> at the same time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, I, you know, I sent a message back to my supervising partner at the firm and I said, look, I've got these offers. I've saved up just enough money that would maybe allow me to do this. And they gave me a leave of absence and I moved to Geneva for nine months. And, you know, it was a huge leap of faith. It was something that I was fortunate that I'd been in a position by working at the firm to be able to do. And I didn't know what the outcome would be because these were just internships. There's, you know, mm. there's 
actively no guarantee of a job. In fact, it's the opposite. You often can't work there for a little while. When I was there, I decided to use the opportunity to speak to mentors about, you know, what what would you recommend for going into this, into the field of global health, if that's what I wanted to do? You know, do I want to be in-house counsel in a health organisation or do I want to work on global health and law? And the advice I consistently got was it was critical to get a PhD or equivalent and, you know, to really pick the supervisor. Don't pick the university, you know, different, there are amazing universities around the world, but really what matters is who your supervisor is. When I was at WHO, I met um, Professor Lawrence Gostin, who was at Georgetown University, is the world leader on, on global health law. Uh, he said, come come to Georgetown, come do your PhD. And I was like, oh, you know, I've just used all my money to, to live in Chile for nine months as an intern. And I was fortunate enough to be successful in a General Sir John Monash scholarship, and which was huge. It was life-changing. Without the support of the General Sir John Monash Foundation, none of this path would have been possible. And I actually remember that. Yeah. I remember that announcement. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was a moment where I just couldn't believe it. Like I just couldn't process that it had actually happened. And so I applied to Georgetown with that. I was successful getting into Georgetown Law for the their PhD equivalent. It's called a Doctorate of Juridical Science. Um, they don't do PhDs in law in the US. It's like a different sort of program. And I saw that. Your letters are like SJD or something? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, which uh, <laughs> my students joke is super JD. Um, <laughs> <laughs> which it actually is. <laughs> yeah, it kind of is. But it's, it's like a five-year program, five-year research program. So I said, oh, I'll be perfectly honest with you. I knew nothing about Georgetown. I, all my life had been focused on, on China. And that was where, you know, I'd always focus on China and lawyers, you know, tend to do their masters or whatever at, um, up Oxford like I got Oxford or, or yeah. like classic sort of UK legal system. And that was a bit stuffy. I wanted to go to a place where my sort of way of approaching lots of issues all at once and with enthusiasm would be part of the way academia works or the way it works. And the US is, you know, where it's at. one of the greatest. Yeah. And and it's a place that actively encourages people to take risks. Mm. My biggest risk was, you know, getting off a plane in Washington, D.C., my first time in the U.S. on a hot August night in 2013 and going, OK, well, I guess I'm, I'm, doing, I'm doing this. And, you know, I was very lucky to have Larry Gossman as my, as my supervisor and as a, a mentor that essentially over the, you know, the last eight years of so my PhD and then I have been subsequently appointed to various faculty positions yeah that is a major downplay of what you actually do <laughs> so let me just read it out guys because Alex will be like oh just you know pointed to a few little things after her doctoral work which was investigating how international law can facilitate response to and prevention of infectious diseases which is so incredibly relevant that it's just almost painful how that all aligned. She's now a member of the Centre for Global Health Science and Security at Georgetown University School of Medicine. So that's one faculty. An assistant professor in the Department of Microbiology and Immunology, a different department, and an adjunct professor of law at Georgetown University Law Centre, a different faculty. <laughs> so I should have actually said, welcome Dr. Alexandra Phelan to the show. <laughs> so now you're Dr. Phelan as well. It is so incredible having gone through uni until now in your orbit and been around to watch this all unravel. It's just so fascinating. And firstly, anyone who has listened to the podcast will see the very, very strong parallels between us with our great love for so many different passions in all different directions and a bit of languages therein as well, and <laughs> arty-farty versus nerdy. And the tapestry you speak about is such a beautiful visual. I 
call it the jigsaw puzzle, which is kind of similar, you know, that every chapter is either getting rid of pieces that aren't working anymore or adding totally new pieces you didn't know existed. I'm actually really impressed with myself that anything I say is similar to what you say. But I always love to emphasize that at each phase, right up until the internship, like you said, you didn't know what the outcome would be. You had no idea what the next chapter would be, but you just kept putting one foot in front of the other and using the data from each chapter to Mm. figure out what the next step is. And you couldn't have jumped from uni to now without all of those steps. And I think we do really try and rush to the end and find just one purpose. But if you're multi-passionate, maybe you're not supposed to have just one purpose. Yeah, I think when you say CZA, it's it's finding, we we don't always have those moments where doing what we're passionate about is is economically, practically, um, emotionally feasible, right? There's there's always the the ground truthing of life and day-to-day life that comes in. But finding the, I've found that finding the way to, to weave in my passions and what interests me, even in the smallest ways, has been the way that doors have opened and the ways that opportunities have come up. And, you know, you say that the idea, you don't actually know what's going, what each step is going to take. And it is a bit like driving through the fog where you're like, look, I can see this little bit in front of me. I'm going to go that little bit and just see where I can get from where, where that takes me. I think this is yeah, a really, really spot on way of, of thinking about it. And I think when you've got lots of interests and lots of passions, that's potentially even heightened because you don't have a model to look to. Yes. You don't have, you know, a biography to pick up and read and go, okay, well, that's the path I need to take. And so it is invariably always going to be trying to sort of make sure you've got your foot on the next step before you, you know, put all your weight <laughs> onto it. I always think having lots of interests is so exciting and dynamic, but it does make that part of your life when you change your decision-making matrix from what I'm good at and what I like as a Venn diagram to letting the shoulds and societal norms on success and expectations kind of creep in. Mm. It makes it really difficult because you're right, there is no logical path when you're interested in often diametrically opposed things like Chinese language and then social health and immunology and microbiology and climate change and corporate law. But I think what I love about these stories and diving a little deeper is that Ultimately, people do often make their way into the niche that pulls all those things together. And perhaps we're the first generation where we have seen that more and more because there are more grey areas of careers that didn't exist before. I mean, who would have ever imagined that your thesis back at university was pretty much targeted at an exact COVID situation that you would become the global authority for decades later? I mean, it's so, so fascinating. And I actually barely even understood what you did before now because it wasn't contextualized into a situation that now I'm like oh my gosh you have been preparing for a decade for this exact situation (laughs) but that's why it's so cool because you were doing it before it was globally relevant and like you said you know you have to trust your gut sometimes your passion isn't economically viable or the hottest topic Mm. and this is where I would love to just pick your brain so much on the decision making process of having faith that what you were doing would be relevant one day and all of that stuff but I think given that you know we can't talk for five hours as much as I love to what would be really important to hear from you is your perspective from being in the thick of it how COVID unraveled for you in a global position of authority on health security, what your views are on how we've dealt with it, Mm -hmm. how it felt to apply your exact skills to a global situation that you've written about for years and you've just had the vaccine, you know, how that went for you and and what your now is like. 
Yeah. So there's a lot of contradictions in it, right? So the, the vaccination is actually a nice little analogy for it. So I, I got my first dose, which was a moment of such a feeling of light, you know, just incredible that in a year we've gone from the emergence of a novel infectious disease to having a countermeasure that's going to save lives and having not just one, but many, many different vaccines. And I had my first dose, which is amazing and, and I'm incredibly fortunate. But then I had really bad side effects. Um, and that was for my, because of my own unique health situation. Um, and they are nothing compared to what if I had gotten COVID would be. Um, so, you know, if I got to choose again, I would absolutely go through it again. But it did, it is an example that not everything is going to be a win-win situation. There, was, there, there are always potentially some, some downsides, but on balance, that's much better. You know, I've, I've got my second dose coming up, so it's still a process. And the reason why I feel this is a bit of analog an analogy is there actually isn't satisfaction in having worried about an issue to the point where you write a thesis, to the point where you go do a five-year degree mm -hmm. overseas away from your family or work in this field to then have all the things you worried about and all the gaps you flag and we're talking about then happen. Yeah. Um, because it's actually, you know, I remember in January when this first emerged, well, you know, December 31, and then, you know, that there were, there were about three weeks in January where I, it was like that feeling of incredible impending doom of going, you know, where this is going and, and the certain key decisions that were happening internationally at that point. That feeling of not being able to stop, you know, this, this barreling train having spent so much time talking about how to stop it, how to prepare, how to respond was, you know, incredibly difficult and didn't have, there were, yeah, there wasn't any particular sort of satisfaction in, in anything coming to fruition. It was like, no, 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 this is what we've been trying to stop. And so, you know, similar to the, to the vaccine is, you know, there kind of aren't any silver linings. And I, I look back to where the big failures have been, how we got to where we are in the United States, in Europe, and it was lack of leadership. It was failures of leadership. It was failures of governance. It was countries turning their back on working together. And it was countries turning inwards. You know, we've now got this week the European Union blocking vaccines from going out. You know, these are all situations where uh, there is sort of that turning inwards to protect citizens. And countries are doing it because that's, you know, that's their duty. But it doesn't, that does, that means that the rest of the world, there aren't vaccines you're going equitably around the world and that's going to prolong the pandemic. And so, you know, from the very beginning, these are about failures of governments not taking into account scientific evidence and not prioritising public health in the right way. I think what is hard is that's really difficult to build back from. Mm. You know, I, I think that what this pandemic has revealed in so many ways are the huge inequalities and gaps in society that, you know, maybe it took a pandemic to get high-level government attention on. Mm. Uh, but I, I do worry that we, we are not going to be prioritising that coming out. And so, you know, I sit here in, in March 2021 or, you know, in the beginning of 2021, and I feel that the, we're only, we're now just stepping on the first step of the flight of stairs. You know, there's still wow. such a, a huge way to go. It's less now crisis and it's now rebuilding. I've done so much sort of technical work that I've kind of stepped away and I've, I've, I'd, I'd have to get you to, to refocus me on, on what particular <laughs> reflections you want me to provide. But I, I, went into, I went back into like pandemic response mode. No, and but that's, that's you know, fascinating. Hard. That's where my brain keeps going. And that, that's kind of also, you know, you spoke a little bit that we're going to talk about burnout and things like that. But I think what's hard is, you know, we're now 15 months in and 
switching off response mode is almost impossible and mm. um, learning to uh, rebalance to normal, yeah. you know, whether that be like starting to play video games again, <laughs> whether that be, you know, talking with people and finding a way to wind back that response mode is, is really tough. Oh, I can't even imagine. And before we started chatting, you know, you mentioned you've pretty much been working every day for 15 months and getting by on, you know, five or six hours of sleep. What has that been like? What work have you been actually doing during those times? And something I think that's really fascinating here is that there is a bit of a misconception often about academia and how it's all sitting in offices, working on theoretical situations and never getting any you know, real life experience. But it sounds like you've very much been hands on in the field the whole time. How has what's happened compared to what was in your original thesis about our preparedness and, and all that kind of stuff? Well, I'm going to be upfront. I, uh, I had not, I had not ever figured that uh, Australian states would close their borders to each other. I thought the, uh, the principles of federalism would, would win out on that one. That was wow. definitely not something I predicted. So in terms of like what I, the big things early on was, you know, this was something novel you know, a lot of my work is advising on um, obligations under law and international law about sharing of data, of rapid notifications of outbreaks, of building surveillance systems. So, you know, I, I do a lot of like written and law stuff, but a lot of it, you know, over the last few years has also been advising on how do you structure a surveillance system? How do you build up public health capacities? And what does your health workforce need to look like? How many we even have run simulations of, you know, how many, how many ventilators do you need? What distribution sites are you going to use? How are you going to prioritise distribution? And these are sorts of skills that were all part of the pandemic preparedness work beforehand that it was like, okay, we're now putting this into place. And one of the big things is we don't have a, or we didn't have a lot of data on what non-pharmaceutical interventions, so things like physical distancing, things like masks, there really was not much data. All we had really was from influenza pandemics. So in the very first, I would say, six months up until sort of, you know, summer or mid, mid last year here was actually very public health advice, directly advising governments, um, directly advising international organisations, businesses on, you know, how to build up a contact tracing system, including, you know, jurisdictions in Australia, uh, but also in, in Europe and the United States, a number of places in the United States. So a lot of my work was very sort of classic public health response, outbreak response. In the outbreak in China, you know, there were things that happened with the initial lockdown in Wuhan that were unprecedented. So going, okay, well, what does this mean? We don't have a huge amount of data. What are the minimum standards? How do we protect human rights? How do we protect public health whilst also protecting, you know, right to food, right to medicines, right to education, all these other factors? And so that's largely a lot of advocacy, but also directly advising governments on, on the sorts of policies that they should be implementing. And over the sort of, you know, the last 15 months in total, I've, you know, advised on a range of different policy measures, including, you know, those social distancing and physical distancing and vaccination or access to treatments early on now more vaccination but also you know more um planning for policies so i've done a lot of work on things like you know immunity passports and the equitable and legal limits and then vaccination passports so yesterday I had in the new york times like a piece about the vaccine about vaccination passports and how there is a lot we really need to think about and there's international law that that who and governments have to think about 
And so what has been quite amazing is everyone is in this pandemic. Everyone is experiencing this pandemic. And so everyone is bringing the expertise to this pandemic. And I think in many instances, there's been a lot of forgetting that there are people who have worked specifically on pandemic preparedness. And so a lot of my job is just saying, well, you know, putting my hand up and saying, okay, yeah, these are really good ideas, but we actually already have laws on this. Yeah. And here's, well, here's some legal advice, you know, and, or, you know, sure. Okay. Well, this is what the law says. If that's what you want to do, this is how we need to actually address it and how we need to prove it. So in many ways, a lot of the skills that I've been applying are actually from advising clients at a law firm day rather than, you know, necessarily legal theory. You know, I've got a lot of colleagues who, you know, are writing on like from an academic perspective. And I think one of the great things I'm so happy to have had is those, you know, those years at a law firm to be able to think about what are the practical and operational issues and and not just get sort of stuck in the, um, the theory or the advocacy and finding a way to balance, balance that. Some of the sort of more longer term things is, you know, I now sit on a number of um, uh, international and national bodies that are looking at the current response and looking forward. There's going to be a few um, quite big international commissions. So I'm I'm currently advising the WHO's independent panel um, that are doing the review and sort of set what the reset should be going forward on international law. Um, And I sit on a number of national academies panels um, looking at, you know, the next pandemic. We're already preparing for that. Oh my god! Because it's, you know, like, let's be honest, this has been huge, but this isn't the big one. When we talk about the big one, we talk about a flu pandemic typically, and that's always the the risk is what the actual big one, you know, the catastrophic one is. But, you know, I think one of the pluses is there are, you know, countries and international organisations are paying attention and, um, you know, um, it's very rewarding to be a part of that process. Lovely neighbourhood for all my fellow business owners out there. I've got a tip that will absolutely change your life for the better. Since the very beginning, we've been using Xero as our accounting software and for over five years, it's been the glue that holds all of our businesses and my sanity together. It's easy to use online accounting software that simplifies everyday business tasks such as invoicing customers, managing cash flow and inventory, reconciling your bank transactions so your books are always up to date, and collating all of your data into clear and invaluable reports. It's hosted online, but there's also a Zero mobile app. So wherever you go, you've got access to the tools you need to run your business. Whether you're part of a team or out on your own, it has options and features for everyone. It's so easy to get started. Search XERO today and start your 30-day free trial. That's XERO.com. It's really interesting that you said before that there is actually no satisfaction in something that you theorize as a huge global risk actually materializing, which makes the whole concept of passion for your job and Mm. fulfillment in that position a bit muddied in this scenario. Mm. You kind of want to be like, I told you so, but you also don't want that to be the case. You don't want that, that global pandemic to come to fruition. And I can imagine that job satisfaction and finding, you know, yay in your work every day is quite hard. You mentioned before that there have been really dark times to be concentrating on mm. the heavier problematic sides of things. Meanwhile, we're all starting to look towards the silver linings of the forced slowdown and appreciating the smaller things again. Quarantine, of course, really does make you appreciate your physical liberty to move around. But for you guys, your immediate focus is what is the next 
most challenging situation? What's the next worst case scenario? Mm. And, you know, what should you prepare for and how much worse could it be? So I'd love to move into the NATA, you know, sort of the biggest challenges to your joy and, and come back, you know, to that topic of burnout that we've been talking about. You've been working every single day for 15 months. How do you navigate the compassion fatigue and and physical fatigue and have any kind of boundaries where you know when you guys are sort of working on the solutions to this problem it's really hard to put in a boundary because you can't say oh no one needs me today like the whole world needs you so how have you navigated that well i i think i can hear um the magpies warbling in the background at uh, and it it is it is so lovely it's one of my favorite sounds <laughs> yeah <laughs> A big thing for me has been getting out in nature. So, you know, I spent the first peak in New York, so the big New York peak, um, and that was very, very tough, you know, being in a 700-square-foot apartment in Hull's Kitchen. And I moved down to D.C. in in June last year so I could at least be able to get out into some woods and forest and get that outside time. So I think Mm. a big thing for me has been making sure I'm out in, in nature and having some time, like walking through the woods and getting that fresh air. But I'm going to be honest, like burnout is the way I've approached this has meant that burnout is an inevitability. And that is something I'm sort of grappling with now is going, okay, am I at a point now where I can start to go, I'm going to do half days for a couple of weeks or, you know, not trying to sort of keep going Oh Well, I'll, I'll have a holiday in like in June and I'll have the whole month of June off and things that keep shifting and always get pushed back and pushed back and pushed back. So, you know, I, I think the, the first step is accepting that that burnout has hit and the, you know, the, the, the getting that first dose of the vaccine, I think was that, that moment of like actually stopping, you know, in, in many ways, it's not necessarily a success story. In many ways, it's not a story of saying, well, I managed to avoid burnout by doing X, Y, Z. It's like, no, actually, I I am at that point and I'm still trying to push through it. And Mm -hmm. so where does that sort of leave me in in thinking about this is I think if I hadn't done the level of what I've been doing over the last year and a bit, I think I would have felt such guilt, Mm -hmm. such a sense of having not given my all for a situation that was not demanding it of me, that that I actively chose to decide I was going to put everything into it. I think not having that regret is actually quite a salve Mm. for how I feel now. Mm. That doesn't mean that that, that's like, well, I'm glad I did that. I'm glad I engaged in that, you know, quite, you know, (laughs) self-destructive or or stressful behavior. It's like, okay, well, you know, I got there now. Am I at this point where I can now, you know, realize, and I I think there was a point actually sort of mid to late last year when, when I was like, okay, I can take my foot a little bit off the gas. There are plenty of other people here who are doing the work and who can carry on the work. And so it's at that point where I'm now like, okay, well, that's what I'm doing now is this next step of, okay, right now isn't the crisis. I can do what I'm doing without necessarily that sense of the same level of urgency. Mm. It's like, okay, let's just ease this back out, you know, building in more time, walking in the woods, you know, building in more time to, you know, finish the day at a reasonable hour and spend time cooking and you spend time talking with friends and with family taking it slowly and winding it back so it's not a shock to the system you know I'm not going to help anyone if I you know 
fall across the line on the 1st of April and then can't do anything for the rest of the year. So mm, it's like a marathon, not a sprint. Yeah. And, you know, it's just like at the end of a marathon, you don't just stop. You've got to slow down, you know, you've got to, you've got you to just die. Yeah. Yeah. I've never done a marathon, so I don't know what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's why your perspective is really, really interesting because a lot of the people we have on here do have a life that is now structured mm. around wellness and vitality and, from lots of trial and error and not denying that many of them have had burnout from Mm. not having boundaries and and pushing themselves too far. But I think the reality is there are many positions and many times and eras of life Mm. or chapters of life where it's not a matter of balance. There is no balance. And realistically, there isn't going to be if certain people are, are doing the jobs that they are passionate about, but also need to do. So it does sometimes become a question of, okay, I'm accepting that this 15-month period is going to be probably one of my unhealthiest, Mm. but then how do you manage the coming out of that? Or how do you take lessons for like maybe next time I'll preserve two or five more percent per day of my energy to kind of make the distance longer? Yeah, I think that that's right. And I think, you know, at the, the beginning of the pandemic, I said to a lot of people who were close to me, I said, I'm really sorry. I'm going to probably the next 12 to 18 months not be around yeah um and you know thankfully a very very understanding family and friends and but i think though that, you know you can sort of put a flag up and say look this is going to be an intense period but it's also a matter of realizing that you still have to make sure that you're not you know martyring yourself yes. particularly if you're not hurting other people not disappearing for other people because then you know why is what is the point of doing all of this you know you don't want to come out of the end of you know 12 15 months and go well that's great but i really hurt the person closest to me um because i wasn't there for them i wasn't mm. supportive so i think there's there's got to be some sort of foundational values if you go into that sort of thinking of things of lines you go, i'm not going to cross that and there are minimum standards that i'm going to make sure i'm there for you know my family or my friends or myself and because it's so easy once you're on that treadmill to just not stop and think that nothing else matters and I think if the pandemic has taught any of us anything is is really recentering on what we value mm. and how we can not harm other people in the choices that we make, whether that be on how we distribute vaccines, mm. whether we wear a mask, yeah. <laughs> or whether we're spending, you know, 15, 20 hours a day <laughs> um, working on something that we think is really important. But at the end of the day, we are interconnected and that's what the pandemic has revealed. And I think that has to be a lesson that, you know, for me, myself, bringing that into daily practice uh, and realising that, that that's a part, I, that has to be reflected in the way I live my own life, mm. not just in the way, you know, I advocate for others or am, you know, pushing for others to, to wear a mask. I'm going to be wearing a mask in my own home, <laughs> metaphorically. Um, <laughs> yeah. I also think it something that I've, I, I think I was starting to think about before this, but it's really hammered at home, is that we spend so much time at the macro level, always thinking about the big picture in a good way, like Mm. thinking about the impact we need to have and our legacy and our career and what's important and the global impact. And it's wonderful to have that focus. But I think we forget the micro in that process of like, 
day to day am I having a good life? Day to day am I building relationships? And you have to have a balance between both of those things. And it can be so easy to get caught in the in the Mm. macro. And I think, you know, I have friends who are doctors who sometimes get to the end of the year and are like, I saved so many other people's lives, but my family hate me. And it's sort of like, well, so but if my if my core value is being a good person, I've been a good person to strangers because the macro value was my job, whereas the micro value should be family. You know, it's, it's such a delicate, challenging balance, but I think it's good to even be thinking that way and dissecting the way that we analyze sort of what our values are. Something I'd love to know is, is there anything over the last 15 months that stand out to you as the most confronting and toughest things that you saw? come out of the pandemic, particularly while you were in New York, where it was very, very intense and very concentrated. Mm -hmm. And then what are some of the best things that you saw come out of it? There are a couple of moments that really come to mind. Um, There was one day in New York when, you know, I, I, you know, our apartment was on 10th Avenue. If you've been to Manhattan and big, big Avenue and Mount Sinai hospital, Upper West Side hospital is, is, you know, up and we're in hell's kitchen and there was a day where every minute there was an ambulance going up and just the scale of what was going on and to see it just right in front of you. Mm. And then when I moved to DC and this is who we've now well surpassed half a million Americans who have died, but there was one day and I'm, I'm, I'm relatively close to the national cathedral. And on the day that marked 400,000 Americans died, the cathedral bells just rang just for every, for every life lost. And I think there are moments when the scale of tragedy can you get lost, particularly, you know, this ties in a little bit to the burnout question is, is adrenaline is so addictive. It is yeah. so, it's such a good place to be in that adrenaline and you're working, 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 and you can forget. And I think, you know, it's hard. A lot of my work is about the inequities and the injustices that we've seen and preventing those loss of lives, but to actually stop and you know, in the US, those deaths are disproportionately minorities. They're African-Americans, they're Latinx populations, they're frontline healthcare workers, they're essential workers. You know, it is a deeply inequitable scale of death. And so I think those moments can't be forgotten. Mm-hmm. And I, I think sometimes hard when I've like spoken with people back home in Australia or in other countries of trying to not convey how heavy and difficult it is, whilst also not feeling the, the, that disconnect of, of what it is to be back in some form of daily life, right, in, you know, back home. Then if we think about what, are the, what are the, have been the, the good moments, the connections between people that at best previously were acquaintances, right? We were, we, you know, we all worked in this field or in ancillary fields, but how critical friends and not like, I mean, obviously my very close friends who are ones who know me and who, you know, we talk, you know, regularly um, or about, you know, the really personal things, the things that matter. Um, and my family uh, go, go without, you know, mention they're absolutely there. But the, the networks of feeling a part of a community together and going through these ups and downs together. So I've got friends who are journalists or other global health specialists or other epidemiologists and responders and those networks have been like the safety net, right? That has just been so wonderful to have these connections that, you know, I think in 50 years time, if we, you know, see each other across like a, across a hotel lobby, it'll just be a, it'll just be, you know, one of those nods where you're like, 
oh yeah, we went through that together and there'll always be that connection. And I think seeing the commitment and passion of people who are responding to the pandemic in all the different ways um, has just been such a, you know, wonderful, wonderful light. And I feel very fortunate to work at a place with colleagues um, and friends who are all committed to that and have been, been a part of that. So that's been wonderful. And I think as an Australian in America, the acceptance of me being here as a foreigner, um, you know, post, post the new administration um, <laughs> has been, you know, it's a place that, that is incredibly friendly, incredibly welcoming, and I think incredibly resilient. There are a lot of problems, there are a lot of challenges, but it is, you know, it is a place of progress. Mm. And, you know, I do very much believe that this, is, this will be the chance for things to, in many parts of society, um, perhaps be addressed. Because yeah. um, if any country can do it, it's, it's America. The displays of humanity in any tragedy are always the silver lining of like you don't ever wish it to happen that way and you don't wish that to be the reason why people do rally together and the best of humanity comes out. But there are so many just lovely heartwarming stories that otherwise you don't necessarily see kind of strangers rallying together that I think have been really beautiful. And another thing that I have found very interesting since the very first question, because we had two takes at that question, and another big NATA, which is a huge topic on this podcast, is self-doubt and imposter syndrome and the fact that not once have you taken any kind of lens of the enormity and impressiveness of what you do and what you've always done and how articulate and eloquent and intelligent and switched on and empathetic and just, you know, I mean, can you tell I love Alex a lot? Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I think uh, particularly being having all these titles and being so focused on what you're doing, does it ever wash over you how cool it is what you do and how do you grapple with that self-doubt when you, you are sometimes sitting at, you know, boardroom tables or big tables in huge organisations where you are young, you are a woman, you know, does that ever creep in and, and impact you and how do you deal with it? That's really, that's some really lovely things, Sarah. Thank you. I think, yeah, when I'm sitting at some of these, these tables or advising on certain things in certain groups, it does sometimes hit me like, oh, wow. Um, it puts a weight on getting things absolutely spot on and absolutely accurate. I'm incredibly privileged in the career that, I've, that I have had, um, the opportunities I've been able to take. And I think that is always in the back of my mind is, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm a foreigner here and yeah, I'm young and yes, I'm a woman. But there are so many other intersectional lack of privileges that means that I'm taking someone else's seat at a table. And so I think for me, part of the last, particularly the last six months has been how can I shift my workload uh, and my opportunities, so not so much workload, actually my opportunities to elevate other voices you know, this, this actually ties in a little bit to that last question is when I realised, you know, I'm an assistant professor and I, I'm on these different positions is <laughs> that carries with a responsibility and I felt a huge weight and also um, privilege with the students that I teach and it has been a, a front of mind priority for me in um, diverse hiring practices and elevating those those voices. And so I feel that there's kind of a nice end point to this sort of discussion that we're having in that I'm at this point where I've overworked myself, I've done so much, but I have, you know, a, a, a 
positions of power that I need to recognize where now is a moment for me to reflect and think, how do I actually give those opportunities to other people, particularly those who are systemically closed out of those systems? Um, and I'm, you know, incredibly fortunate to have people I work with and students that I work with that um, are exceptional and will do a much better job than I um, if I can step aside and give them those, those seats at the table. That is the ultimate imposter syndrome answer to point out who else, <laughs> how other people are exceptional and will do a better job than you. <laughs> to put you on the spot, of all the mm. incredible things you have worked on, I mean, this isn't the first pandemic you've worked on. Your work on Ebola was mm. very significant as well. And I'm sure there are many other things that don't make the Wikipedia page. You have a Wikipedia page, by the way. So fancy. <laughs> <laughs> What is the thing that you are most proud of that you have worked on before we move on to the section that is not about your work? <laughs> Easiest answer this year, um, because I, you know, can't, I can't just do one thing. I decided to start a new class, <laughs> a new course that hasn't been taught anywhere in the world called planetary health law that tries to think about, you know, the impacts of climate change on land use, on emerging infectious diseases and how law does a very bad job of trying to deal with this. And so I've started this new class and I have 17 students who are, every time we meet, every time I do a lecture, they just, you know, impress me so much. Um, and I'm just so proud of, of them. They just did their midterm and uh, were, I, I was just shocked with how well they did. And it's just um, that, that easily for me out of, out of everything, that's, that is what I'm most proud of. Oh my gosh. Well, the final section is your play TA, which we've already touched on and which I imagine you haven't had much time for in the last 15 months and at various stages of your life. But I think it is one of the most important things to get balance and to be good at. If the ultimate goal is to be good at your job, it's even more important to get distance and to get perspective and to just get in touch again with who you are when you're not an adjunct professor or a global health expert. You know, there has to be a you who is Alex with friends or just alone time. I'm not, I'm not sure you ever have alone time, but when you do, <laughs> other than gaming, are there things that you do that are purely for joy that just make you so happy and where you're just silly and just enjoy you know, what it is to be alive. Yeah, you know, I have found great joy in birds and squirrels. <gasps> and I, my, my <laughs> office, I'm, I'm not sure if you can see it from here, but I, I've got all these trees, like a little, this little forest plot next to me. And I spend a good 20 minutes of every day just watching birds and squirrels. And um, I just... <laughs> utterly love it. The other day I thought I saw for the first time a skunk and I was so excited because <gasps> it was huge, had this big white stripe and I'd never seen one before and it turned out just to be a very big cat so that was disappointing. <sighs> but I've got like um, opossums and raccoons that pop up. So for me, um, remembering that there is this world that's still turning, still happening, yeah. there's this nature that's still there is really grounding. Um, and, you know, the squirrels just embody how I feel on the inside all the time. Like just, so, you know, that, yeah, exactly, exactly. So that's been a, that's been a, a, a great joy. You know, I love, I love reading. Um, haven't had a huge amount of time for it, but, um, you know, any of those sorts of those quiet moments. I'm, I was thinking today I want to sort of take some time to get back to some calligraphy, back to some Chinese because, you know, I was fluent once. I wouldn't say I am now, but you know, taking those little moments just to, um, to reconnect with the things that, that, you know, 
um, mattered to you at some point. Um, yeah, and, and that's sure. definitely one of them. <laughs> and gaming, obviously. And gaming, exactly. <laughs> I love that there's one thing that's not intellectual. Like I feel like bird watching is still quite an art and calligraphy in Chinese is obviously highly academic and <laughs> reading is also literary. But then there's one thing that's just like, yeah, The Sims. Like, yeah. What yeah. <laughs> Again, making structurally unsound houses and uh, <laughs> living out my interior decorating dreams through The Sims. Absolutely. <laughs> I see a next chapter coming on. Dr. Alexandra Phelan, interior design. <laughs> oh, look, I mean, if, 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 if I were to escape to the country, that would, uh, that would give me so much satisfaction, just a, a bit of time with some, some <laughs> wallpaper. And uh... <laughs> Do you have any bucket list things? Usually the last question is three interesting things about you that don't normally come up in conversation. But I would actually love to know, are there any bucket list careers that you would do if you were not in global health at all like do you feel like you'll hit a point where not so much the compassion fatigue but just the intensity fatigue Mm. will hit you and you'll think okay that was one chapter now I will apply myself in this other way like I have this random thing that one day I'm going to be a a crime fiction author like that's one of the things I would love to do it's got nothing to do with anything definitely not yay very serial killer orientated But it's just a, a random thing. I'm like, one day I'll do that. You know, I, the fact that the only lens which, through which I can actually approach this question is thinking, if I had to go into witness protection, <laughs> like that, that's a level of <laughs> yeah. disconnect I feel I need. Um, that's the only you know, way love... that you would actually let yourself not yeah, work. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I love planning travel for other people. Um <gasps> I really love that because I, at the heart, I'm a researcher. Like that's, I'm very, like, that's kind of the attention to details is sort of the research. And so if someone says to me, this is the experience that I want, then I, I would plan it. Now, obviously it's not the best career choice to go into in a pandemic. Um, but, but that, I think that would be, uh, a, an alternate career. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to stick with that. Like, uh, travel planner for other people. Uh, and I would live vicariously through them because I, I may not be able to get on a plane again after, the, <laughs> after all the travel. I <laughs> uh, that's a great one. Very last question, my love. What's your favorite quote? Uh, okay. So I, my favorite quote is actually, I'm going to, I'm going to, um, destroy it when I say it um so (laughs) let me it's it's Audrey Audrey Lord the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house you know I spend my life working in law and as we've seen in the last few weeks in Australia law is a system that is set up to benefit the people who built it and if we continue to try and operate within that realm and trying to use that system, whether we're talking about getting it, uh, you know, uh, for First Nations voices, for women's rights. These are systems that are deliberately set up not to allow those, those voices. So, you know, I think really thinking about is international law the right thing to be protecting us? Um, how do our legal systems need to be rethought and the principles in which we think are sacred, how do we critique them? And so that, that, that order law quote lets me always reflect on you know, what assumptions are we making about how we're our starting point? And, you know, obviously that's within a much bigger context, but I think, um, yeah, that's one that always comes back to me. 
think you've absolutely just confirmed that you operate a on another level to the rest of us like that it's just your brain must go at a million miles an hour I love it so much (laughs) but b that we should all vote for you for president (laughs) of anywhere of the world basically (laughs) Dr. Feeling for president what an incredible human being you are thank you so so much for joining thanks for having me Sarah it's been really delightful I really appreciate it Oh, this was such a joy. I love being at that age now where you can see the many offshoots and parthiers we've all followed from those common beginnings, but off in all different directions and see the C's the A philosophy living itself out in the flesh. Isn't Alex just the most intelligent, eloquent and endearingly lovely human? <laughs> As always, please share your takeaways or learnings from this episode on socials, tagging Alex at A-L-P-H-E and myself so we can keep spreading the yay as far and wide as possible. And if you haven't hit that subscribe button or left a review, I don't blame you. I know we always forget to do it, but please take a quick moment to do so. It really does mean so much to keep the show growing as an independent production and to keep our yayborhood thriving. I hope you're having an amazing week and a seizing your yay.